Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Well done, Carolyn. Good work. That wasn't an easy reading, yeah. Why not? A little round of applause. Very good. Um, please uh, keep your Bibles open there at Matthew chapter 1. You might also like to find uh, this little handout that you received um, on the way in, which will just show you where we're going over the next few minutes. Um, let me pray for us. Father, help us, please, as we look together now at these words from the start of Matthew's gospel. Help us to see your story and our place within it, and to see more clearly than perhaps we've ever seen, the glory of Jesus and the sweetness of the gospel. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In 25 days, the country will go to the polls to vote in an election that apparently no one wanted. Uh, We weren't supposed to be voting again for another two and a half years, but our politics has become paralysed by the problem of Brexit and a divided parliament. I was a politics student here in Sheffield, so I normally love this kind of thing. I love general election campaigns. I know it's very geeky, but I enjoy watching the politicians go around the country, being wrong-footed by the challenges of the public, being heckled, that kind of thing. It's all quite good entertainment to someone like me. But this election and the one before it actually have felt very different because they've taken place against the backdrop of a divisive referendum and a divided country, divided about what our place in the world should be. One side feel the country's heading in the wrong direction because of poor leadership. The other side feel that the promises of politicians to honour the referendum have been left unfulfilled. 
You may have seen how it all came to a head a few weeks ago with uh, politicians in the House of Commons shouting and raging at each other in a way that was particularly awful, even for British politics. And so I think it's fair to say that the mood in the country is one of gloom and frustration, not knowing what's next or where we as a country are going or who's in charge, if indeed anyone is. Now, even if you're not interested in Brexit or the election, there must have been times in your life when you've stopped and asked yourself similar things. Where am I going in life? What's my place in the world? Is all this heading somewhere? Is there a purpose to it? All of us want to, more than that, need to have some sense of our place in the world, some sense that we fit into a story that's bigger than ourselves, a sense of purpose and direction to our lives. But where do we find that kind of purpose? And how do we have hope when the future seems so uncertain? Today we're beginning a new series at the start of Matthew's Gospel, and it's written into the context of a people who are frustrated and feeling lost, frustrated by generations of poor leadership and unfulfilled promises, unsure of what their future is and where they're heading. Matthew describes the nation of Israel in chapter 4 as a people living in darkness, and it was a long, deep darkness. If you look down to Matthew chapter 1, you'll see a blank page to the left. Now, I just want you to take that page in between your finger and your thumb like that, okay? That page stands between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew. Just one little page, but it represents 400 years without a word from God. A long stretch of a people disobeying God and being judged by him with Silence. They felt in the dark, uncertain about their national identity as the people of God, fearful that maybe he would never keep the promises he made to their ancestors, a people living in darkness. And then comes Matthew's gospel, and it seems at first glance, perhaps to us, to be a pretty dull beginning, just a long list of names. I wonder what you were thinking as Carolyn was reading it a few minutes ago. Maybe poor old Chris having to preach on that. Perhaps it feels like the startup sequence to a Star Wars film, you know, when the words scroll across the screen and everyone's just thinking, will you please get on with the action? Well, if that's what you think about the uh, beginning of Matthew's gospel, I hope to show you over the next few minutes that this is anything but a dull beginning to a gospel. It's a grand and brilliant opening, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. For a people living in darkness, that is like fireworks exploding against the dark night sky. It's a spectacular announcement of hope to those longing for an escape from centuries of despair. It gives them, and it can give you and me, a clarity about who we are, where we fit into the story of what God's doing in the world, and confidence about where it's all heading. Don't you want that in life? I know I do. To know who you are and where this is heading and to be full of confidence and hope for the future. This grand opening to the gospel shows us that Jesus is the hope of a nation that we can be part of. Firstly, Jesus is the hope of a nation founded on the promises to Abraham. It all began with Abraham. Look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. The heart of the national identity of the Jewish people was that they were all descendants of this one great forefather, Abraham. 
He was so important to them because it was from his story that their national story sprang. It was Abraham that God chose back in Genesis chapter 12. And it was to Abraham that God gave the great promises that would shape the hopes of the nation. These were the promises in Genesis chapter 12 and starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. He promised him a land, a place of his own. Then he promised him lots of offspring. I will make you into a great nation, he said. Your descendants will be so many, they'll form a whole nation. Then he promised him great blessing and that through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. This is what it says. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And those promises, a land becoming a great nation, being blessed by God and being a blessing to all nations, those were the promises that shaped the national destiny of Israel. God told Abraham to leave his country and go. And it says, so Abraham left as the Lord had told him. And ever since that day, the nation of Israel had, at least metaphorically, been out looking for the fulfillment of those promises, searching, waiting, hoping. And so the generations continued. Verse two, Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, the 12 brothers who would be the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. Judah to Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon. And look at verse five. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Ah, interesting. He's including a woman in this genealogy. And quickly followed by another, Boaz, the father of Obed, who was, whose mother was Ruth. And how interesting that he includes those two women. Rahab the Canaanite, Ruth the Moabite, both foreign women, but included among God's people. A taste already, perhaps, of this people extending blessing to all nations and being open to all people. Boaz to Obed, Obed to Jesse, and ah, verse six. Look at verse six. Jesse, the father of King David. And here at last, we arrive at a high point in the history of Israel. King David Jesus is the hope of a nation founded on the promises to Abraham and secondly foreshadowed in King David. The reign of King David was a moment in the history of Israel when things looked so good they thought maybe, maybe God had finally fulfilled the promises to Abraham. There they were in the land, a great nation blessed with peace and prosperity, spreading wealth and blessing to the nations around. And on the throne was David, the shepherd boy who killed Goliath saved the nation and became king. He was the darling of Israel, a fairy tale king, and with authority and power to lead God's people well. His authority was complete. He had rest from his enemies. His throne was secure. He was a great king. And God promised that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. Surely this is it. But then it all went very, very wrong. Take a look down at the second half of verse six. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. I think most families have those parts of their history that they try to avoid talking about because they're a bit too embarrassing or awkward. And there are some things we just don't talk about because actually they're kind of ugly parts of our family history. We don't want the conversation to ever go there, really. But in this genealogy, Matthew goes there. 
David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And to anyone who knows their Old Testament, they know exactly what Matthew's getting at. Had been, that is, right up until David had seen her, Bathsheba, bathing on the roof. And so he summoned her, slept with her, made her pregnant, and then tried to cover his tracks by having her husband Uriah killed so that he could make her his wife. A shameful moment that Matthew highlights to show that David was not the great king that the the nation needed. His sin was uncovered and his authority shot. He and his reign turned out to be only a foreshadowing, a brief foretaste of the promises God made to his people, but not their final fulfillment. And so the story continued through the time of the kings of Israel, from David to Solomon to Rehoboam, a foolish king who caused the split of the kingdom. And by this point, the wheels are really falling off. And never again did they have a king like in the early days of David. There were some who were good, none that were great, and lots who were awful. And so the hopes of the nation of Israel weren't fulfilled in David, only briefly foreshadowed. Through those years, God sent prophets who repeatedly warned the people that if they continued to rebel against him, he'd have to send the ultimate wake-up call of exile, being thrown out of the promised land. And in the end, that's what it came to. That's where the second section of the genealogy ends in verse 11 with the exile to Babylon. The hopes of the nation founded on the promises to Abraham foreshadowed in King David were terribly frustrated by exile. As terrible as it was to be forced from their homes and their homeland into the service of a foreign king, the real sting of the exile was all that it represented. Being in exile meant being out of the presence of God, thrown out of the land and sent away, crucially, from the temple, the place where God symbolically dwelt. While they were in exile, they would continue to pray by turning towards Jerusalem, specifically towards the temple, as a sign of their longing to be back in the presence of God again. Those were long days of deep darkness for the people of Israel, both in exile and in the days after their return, as they slowly tried to rebuild something of the greatness of former times, but they never really recovered from the exile. The remarkable thing about those listed in verses 12 to 15 is how apparently unremarkable they are. We know very little about them. But they lived through a period of darkness, disappointment, frustration, and confusion. Where were the promises now? And where was the God who made them? Had he given up on them? Where were they heading as a nation? Their hopes had been frustrated by exile and its aftermath. And yet, the light of hope had never quite gone out. The people still hoped and longed for a king who would sit on the throne of David and through whom the promises to Abraham would finally be fulfilled. They called that figure Messiah, the Greek translation of which is Christ. That was the nation, the history, the generations of longing into which a baby boy was born. Verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. And here it comes, who is called Christ. Can you imagine being a Jew and reading Matthew's gospel for the first time and how explosive it would be to read verse one of his gospel, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's saying, here's a man who is heir to the throne of David and heir to the promises of Abraham. Come to bring us out of a long, deep darkness into the days of fulfillment. Here is your Christ. Wow. Dare we believe it could be true? But three times Matthew calls him the Christ. Verse 1, verse 16, verse 17. He's saying, here's the Christ we've been waiting for all our lives and for thousands of years. Matthew shows us in this gospel that the hope of the nation of Israel, founded on the promises to Abraham, foreshadowed in King David, frustrated by exile, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Matthew shows us that that throughout his gospel, but especially by the way he ends his gospel. And so would you turn there with me, page 1001, to the end of Matthew's gospel. And that should get you to Matthew chapter 28. And if you look to verse 18, we're looking at the final words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Very famous words, but look at what Matthew's doing there. He's showing us that Jesus is the eternal king who will sit forever on David's throne with all authority. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's showing us that Jesus brings the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, especially here, that they would be a blessing to all nations as they share the gospel. Verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And finally, the shame of exile and separation from the presence of God is undone, as Jesus says at the end of verse 20. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All authority, all nations, with you always. Do you see, after the long darkness comes the dawn of the Christ. Everything has been leading to this moment and this man. He is the one they've been waiting for, the hope of a nation. But you might be left thinking, yeah, fascinating, but really, what's that got to do with me? A few years back, I was staying with my gran and we were sitting in the lounge and she asked if I wanted to see our family tree. I couldn't really say no. Um, so uh, off she went um, to get it. And I was expecting her to come back through a few minutes later with you know, a bit of A3 paper or maybe two sellotaped together. She came back through with a long uh, cardboard uh, tube and pulled out this huge scroll and ran it all the way along the length of the dining room table, pinning it down at the far end. And I thought to myself, oh no, we're going to be here a long time, aren't we? And sure enough, we were. We were there for quite a while. And she took me carefully back through the family tree, stopping off at various points to give detailed um, uh, commentary on what went on at these different stages. And uh, this family tree went back all the way, I kid you not, to William the Conqueror. Um, there were some gaps along the way, and details got a bit thin at points, but she was convinced she had traced it back to William the Conqueror. Um, but we were there for a long time, and you know what? I was fascinating. I, I, I was gripped by it because I realized that this was my family tree. These were my origins, and there's just something about that that just matters to know where I've come from and who I am. 
The family tree in Matthew chapter one will mean so much more to us when we grasp that this is our family tree and our origins because this is a nation that we can be part of by faith. And if you're a Christian, it's one that you are already part of. Galatians chapter three, verse seven says, those who have faith are children of Abraham, part of the family of the faith, brought into the story just like Ruth and Rahab were, though they were foreigners. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're a child of Abraham. And this family tree is your spiritual history. It's where you've come from. How about we work back in the other direction? Who was it that led you to faith in Jesus? Was there one, maybe two people who were particularly influential on you? For me, it was my parents. Let's just take my mum as an example. Who led her to faith? Well, actually, it was her mum too. Who led her to faith? It was her sister, Mary. Who led Mary to faith? Well, it was her boyfriend, Joe. Who led Joe to faith? Well, I'm not quite sure, but I know that it happened in a chapel at a gospel meeting in Sale near Manchester. I don't know any more than that. I don't know who the preacher was or whether someone maybe sat down and spoke with him afterwards and led him to faith. So I can't trace my spiritual family tree back any further than that, except I can. There are plenty of gaps along the way, sure, and the details might get thin. But if I were able to trace it back and back, eventually I would get to a spiritual ancestor who was led to faith by, well, probably one of the apostles or someone else who had first-hand experience of the ministry of Jesus, and they were led to faith by Jesus. And from there back up the family tree, Matthew chapter one fills in the details. And the same is true for you if you're a Christian. Your spiritual ancestry goes all the way back to Jesus and through him to David and Abraham. This is where you come from. Doesn't that make you look at it differently? As a Christian, the joy is to discover you're part of something bigger than yourself, a bigger story, the story of Jesus. I guess that would have been a surprise to many of the people named in this genealogy. Ruth, the widowed refugee, what do you mean one day my name's gonna be at the start of a gospel? What even is a gospel? Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute in a city about to be destroyed. How can I be part of the big thing that God is doing in the world? Joseph, the carpenter from Galilee with a pregnant fiance he hadn't slept with. I've got a role in God's plan to bring salvation to all the world, really? And maybe you hear all of this and you think, me, a place in God's plan? You sure? Yes. God has a big picture view of the sweep of human history, but when he looks down at the world, he doesn't see a crowd of faceless humans. He's not like a World War I general kind of pushing plastic soldiers around a map of Europe. He knows all the individuals involved. He knows their names, their hopes, their fears. He knew all the people listed here in Matthew 1. He knows you and me that intimately, and he wants us to be part of his story. Through faith in Jesus, we become part of this family, part of the promises, part of the everlasting kingdom of Jesus, something bigger than ourselves that matters more and will last forever. If you're here this morning and you're thinking about becoming a Christian, Jesus doesn't offer to come and be part of your story. It's so much better than that. He offers you the chance to be part of his. Part of becoming a Christian is realizing that the story of the world doesn't revolve around me, it revolves around Jesus. And it's not about my little ambitions for the next few years I have alive. It's about his plan of salvation that spans the whole sweep of human history. When you think of it like that, which is more exciting? 
Your story or his? Which would you like to be part of? Jesus is the one the Jews had been waiting for, but the truth is, he's the one we've been waiting for too, whether or not we knew it. He's the one who gives our lives meaning and purpose and context, and he gives us a future by saving us from the mess of our sin, the shame of our past, and the eternal exile from his presence that should have been ours. Our politicians may offer poor leadership or leave promises unfulfilled, but in Jesus we have a perfect king through whom all God's promises to his people are kept. Where is this promised land? The new creation where we'll live forever. Have we become a great nation? Countless, as all the Christians that have ever lived. Are we blessed by God with every spiritual blessing in Christ? And are we bringing blessing to the world? Yes, as we share the good news of Jesus. We're doing just that. As we head towards a general election, don't think for one moment that you'll find salvation in Boris, son of Stanley, or Jeremy, son of David, or Joe, daughter of Peter. I had to look that one up. But in Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham, we have one on whom we can safely rest all of our hopes and our deepest longings. We have one before whom we can rightly fall in awe and worship. Place your hope in this man. Find your identity in his story. The prophet Isaiah wrote of his coming, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Let's pray. Father, how can we begin to thank you for Jesus? Our hope, our saviour, our king, our Christ. Without him is such darkness and gloom and hopelessness. Thank you that in him all your promises are kept and that in him we have a king who will never let us down. Help us to find our identity in him and help us to live our lives as those who have found our place in his story. And as we do that, grow his kingdom and his family tree through more and more putting their trust in him as their Christ for the glory of your name. Amen.